0: When I have the opportunity to preach this year, we're going to look at the book of of 1 John, which is rich in encouragement and is focused on us being united in the truth of Jesus Christ. With that, I'll ask you to turn your Bibles then to 1 John. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. For those who are Maybe not as familiar with your Bibles. The easiest way to get to First John is going to be starting at the back. Uh, you'll go Revelation, a page of Jude, third, second, and then First John. It says, "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest may be complete. I'm in no way a history buff, and there's probably many more in this room, Brian Miller included, that understand and know American history much better than I. But maybe because it's, I've been listening more and more to the Hamilton soundtrack, or maybe it's because I've been a little intrigued and asking myself why the chasm and divide of the American political landscape seems to be widening and deepening by the day. But I found myself asking, what unites our country? As the united states of America, what is it that creates or allows for that unity that is exhibited in our name? I began to consider the foundation of our country when the name the United States of America came into existence. As I considered what united our forefathers, it's actually not surprising that our unity isn't very strong at all. What America was founded on, what our forefathers were seeking together was in fact individualism. The revolution against British rule incited by Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson was fought because this group of people agreed that they wanted the financial freedom that comes from not paying British tax. They wanted freedom from British religious rule. They wanted their own voice and approach to set their laws. Regulation and rules of governing. If you stop and think about it, then it's kind of weird to think that they were united in individualism. That idea can't really last that long. It's almost a misnomer or oxymoron. After the dust settled, from the revolution, it would take a pretty dramatic mind shift then to truly find unity. It's no doubt then that it was difficult to find unity again. That purpose for unity, right? Us together seeking our individualism individualism was, was gone. And while there were Attempts with our Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the many laws and the setup of our court systems. The history of our country has mostly been a two-party system at odds with any and every subject that has come up. The unity that existed in the revolution has disappeared. But that root of individualism Wanting our own way has remained. I think it's natural for us then to consider as citizens of the United States of America what unites us. Do we foolishly think we're united by individualism? But more importantly, as followers of Christ, with our primary identities as kingdom citizens. We can find that answer and know what unites us from the word of God. And as we turn then to 1 John and specifically the first four verses that we read this morning, we see that thrust and understanding of where fellowship and unity comes. The focus and purpose of this set of verses is clearly stated in verse 3, where it says, so that you too may have fellowship or unity with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That there is fellowship, there is unity amongst us as kingdom citizens is in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The Apostle John is writing this letter to the early Gentile church, attempting to solidify and encourage those who have remained steadfast and united in their understanding of the truth of the gospel. Written approximately 50 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, John was communicating to second and third generation Christians who were suffering from a church split, notably due to and influenced by the heresy of docetism. The false teaching of docetism is the idea that Jesus was not man, but merely a spirit. That Jesus wasn't physically made manifest here on earth, but was just a mirage or an image or a spirit. The true church to which John is writing remained, but they were bruised and battered, hurt by the losses they had incurred due to this false teaching. They had friends fall away. They had experienced broken fellowship. With, with members of their church. It would be natural for them to be questioning why fellowship had been broken or doubting their belief in the truth of Christ's physical presence to eventually atone for their sins. It would be natural for them to question if there really was a perfect, spotless lamb who came here to be slain. John attempts to help us understand, despite this sin and brokenness, how can we have fellowship? How do we proceed in unity without fear of more broken fellowship? John comes to encourage them, to affirm them, and in fact to condemn the unbelief and untruth of the docetists. So far as in 1 John chapter 4, he reminds them that Jesus is who he says he is and who the apostles say he is, fully man and fully God, and says that those that don't believe in the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ are in fact not even from God. They're antichrists. John here is wanting To lead this Gentile church to be assured of the reality that fellowship is found in Christ and Christ alone. To paraphrase, John is saying, don't worry about them. They don't know Jesus. And our fellowship is with Jesus and the truth of who he is. And what really unites us as true believers results in true fellowship. And so that is the focus, that section in in verse 3 is what the rest of this first four four verses hinges on. That there may be fellowship with the Father through Jesus Christ, united with the apostles, and in turn with the full body of saints that make up the church through the truth of who Jesus is. John continues in these first four verses then to remind the believers of who Christ is, to lay out a few of the truths that unite them. The three foundational truths of Jesus Christ that John testifies to here are that first, Jesus is the Word of life, secondly, that he is the life made manifest, he is fully man and fully God. And thirdly, that Jesus is eternal and the giver of eternal life. We see here then in these three truths that John is laying out that the focus or the element that unites all of them is that Jesus is life. the word of life the life made manifest eternal and the giver of eternal life with that connection of jesus being life we'll try to look at each of these things separately to further understand these truths of who jesus is but recognize that they begin to play off of one another, that they're interrelated and connected, but that the focus is that Jesus is life. Throughout First John, John will use comparisons or parallels between two things. When we think of the opposite of life, it is death. Later on, John will again parallel the idea that Jesus is life and all other things are death. He'll go on later to utilize other parallels, light and darkness. But with that, let's start looking at the truth that Jesus is the word of life. Looking back to verse 1 and part of verse 2, we see the reference to John calling Jesus the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest To see what it means for Jesus to be the word of life, we can look back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, which similarly explains or provides Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And jumping down to verse 14 in the gospel of the first chapter of the gospel of John it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us The God which created all things in the beginning was one which spoke all things into existence He said let there be light and there was light He said Let there be stars and moons and seas and land and animals and man. And there was. With the Word, it was spoken into existence. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only in the beginning did the Word create life, but thankfully for us as Sinners in need of a Savior through Jesus Christ remained a life-giving God. We were dead in our transgressions, our sin keeping us from being with the Father and having eternal life. But Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, came to allow us to be born again to be new creations through the word of life that is Jesus Christ. Throughout scripture, over and over again, we see that he, Jesus Christ, is the one that makes all things and makes all things new. But the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman that what he gives is not water that allows for her to thirst again, but water that becomes a spring welling up To eternal life. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, with all power and authority to be the giver of life, was the Word which created all things from the beginning and which made us all new creations again. And we see testimony from the apostles throughout Scripture as well, from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to con- condemnation for all men, right, the sin of Adam, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. Testified by Jesus himself, testified by the apostles, and in fellowship and in unity, testified by the body of believers that is the church. Jesus Christ is the giver of life for all who believe in the truth of who he is. True fellowship is seen and known in the truth that Jesus Christ is the giver of life. The second foundational truth revealed in these first four verses is that the life was made manifest. In this truth, the Apostle John is directly opposing the false teaching of the Docetists. He attacks this untruth in two ways, appealing to two concepts which we as humans can know and trust and understand. First he appeals to the truth of who Jesus was with his personal testimony of his senses. And secondly through the group consensus and authority of the apostles. When we're young one of the first things we begin to we begin to understand and one of the first things that we begin to trust are our senses. By sight, by sound, by smell, by touch, by taste, we perceive the world around us. In short order, our senses begin to color our reality. Our truth checker, per se, comes from our senses. The expression, if it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, Feels like a duck. I don't know if that's how the expression goes, actually. Uh, You know what it is. I don't know. It's rooted in the trust of our senses, right? If you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can hear it, then it must be true, right? It must be what it is. And so John uses that then to appeal to these Gentile believers the assurance of Jesus' humanity that he was the word made flesh by the use of his senses. From verse 1, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and have touched. The Apostle John is saying those which have broken fellowship with you, cannot be correct because we have heard and we have seen and we have touched Jesus Christ as man. Due to our senses, your understanding, believers, is the truth of who Jesus is. Secondly, John then appeals to our understanding of group, sense, group consensus to bring authority. Looking back at that same set of verses, it says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have touched. John does, doesn't just explain what he alone has experienced with Jesus but is appealing to what all the apostles of Jesus who walked alongside him experienced. Chances are, if you're looking for a new coffee pot, and you head to Amazon to find out which coffee pot is best, you're going to start looking at reviews. Right, You're going to start seeing what other people have said, about the coffee pot that you're interested in purchasing. More often than not, the product with 3,000 five-star reviews is going to be seen as more favorable than the coffee pot with no reviews or only a couple reviews. That idea is appealing to our authority of group consensus, right? That we believe that if more people say that it's true, it must be true. Beyond that, in this case, John is appealing to his authority as an apostle, right? As one who walked alongside Jesus, who was there and followed him intently. John is communicating that these experiences, this fellowship with God through Jesus that was and is experienced by the apostles, can also be experienced by all believers through believing in the truth of Jesus Christ. He is writing so that they may experience fellowship with Jesus, God the Father, and the apostles. Finally, we see that John explains that Jesus is eternal and the giver of eternal life. In the second half of verse 2 and into verse 3, it says, John, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we may have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John is communicating again that Jesus is eternal life. is proclaiming that eternal life is available to those who believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. As Caleb touched on in the Gospel of John, the claim of Jesus being eternal is really the ultimate stake to his godliness. As John the Baptist testifies in John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. The truth that Jesus Christ is God is eternal, and the giver of eternal life is the foundational truth of Christ's followers the understanding that the word became flesh that jesus was with the god, was with god the father in the beginning separates jesus christ from all others who came before and all others that come after and that which he has in eternal life he freely gives to those who have fellowship with god through jesus christ From Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. We are joined in fellowship on the firm foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel that he who was from the beginning who came to earth as fully man and fully God, died the death we deserve so that we could have eternal life. Folks, that is why we have fellowship. That is why we are united. We, the church, are united in the blessed assurance of eternal life through Christ Jesus. So we've seen here at the beginning of 1 John that believers can have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, with the apostles, and with fellow believers because of the truth of who Jesus is. We see the truth that Jesus is the word of life, the life made manifest to us fully man and fully God, and that he is eternal and the giver of eternal life. In conclusion, then, I invite us, church, to join and rejoice so that our joy may be complete in the only true fellowship, that which is united in the truth of Jesus Christ. The fact that you are here this morning is a step, shows a desire, shows an understanding that you value and know the truth of Jesus Christ you've set aside time on Sunday morning to come and proclaim the name of Jesus in worship and hear the life-giving word preached. By being with God's people on Sunday morning, I hope you know that you truly believe that we are united in fellowship through Christ and Christ alone. But just as Jesus is the life Believers are asked to give all of their lives, to align all that they are in the firm foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ. The Lord asks us to press in and to proclaim our belief in this truth with our full identities, our thoughts, our words, our actions, all that we are we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just Sunday morning, not just Tuesday night in community group, not just during your morning prayer time or when you open your Bible in the evening. No, we're asked to press in and testify and proclaim the eternal life that was made manifest to us. We recognize that this past year has been quite a challenge with the pandemic. The normalcy we enjoyed prior to last March was disrupted. Many of the relationships and connection points that existed in our lives have been taken away. The reality is that after the pandemic subsides or goes away or whatever that looks like, our lives may never really look the same. Fellowship looks different. In our case as the church, we have connections that may need to be rebuilt. New friendships may be formed because the people we had connected with before just haven't been available or we haven't been able to connect. Creates an opportunity for us. I hope, in fact, that the pandemic and this short-term broken fellowship that has existed with the difficulty that the pandemic has created allows truly for an awakening. In some cases, I Hope that it's ripped away from us what we saw as false fellowship. Maybe the temporary unity that we saw in being a part of a sports team or some activity that we did on Tuesday nights or some specific hobby that we had. Maybe we've found over the past year that those things that we thought were bringing us temporary satisfaction and fellowship, those things that busied our schedules and our minds and our hands, don't ultimately satisfy. Maybe we recognize that over this past year we've tried to busy our minds and our hands with similar but at-home activities that also don't satisfy. Folks, we are in a world that is craving connection. Craving fellowship, craving unity. Even if those around us don't say it, they're tired of talking about sports and work and fishing and, and what they really want and, and what we really need is to, someone to ask how we're really doing. To ask, where's your heart at? To ask, how are you dealing with the difficulties of the sin that plagues our day to day? People around us are begging us to say, how can I join you, point you, lead you, and be reminded of the assurance of eternity that we have in Christ Jesus? I'll tell you straight up, I've had a lot of friendships in my life. I've shared a lot of experiences with other people. I've searched for ways to create connection. I'm an outgoing, social guy with lots of acquaintances. Most people would look at me and say, "Oh, yeah, that guy's good at making friends." But I can tell you that the reason my wife is my best friend, and that I have more, that I have deeper, more meaningful relationships today with Caleb and Mark and John and Brian and Kalen and Anton and Adam and Douglas and Levi and others here is because of the true fellowship, the unity that binds us in the truth of the gospel. Any common bond we have outside of that truth only pales in comparison. In fact, in most cases, it's not really uniting us. It's masking what real, true unity is. but we rejoice because of Jesus Christ. We rejoice that we have fellowship with one another and we have fellowship with God. I've seen, over the past five years, our church continue to grow. I've seen a group of people who are disciples, making disciples. And I know that the deeper relationships that I'm talking about have been seen and experienced by many of you as well. There are men and women in this room, in our context today, who are united stronger than they've ever been united with others before. But still, church, there is more to be done. There is more fellowship in the body. There are more connections to be made, rooted in the foundation of the truth of the gospel. Sunday mornings are brimming with new faces, new brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we can connect and share in this life giving fellowship. Maybe there's relationships that we have which have found themselves trending towards how's the weather in Vikings football, when in reality we should be asking how's your marriage? Have you been spending time? In the Word. I encourage us, church, to spur on this fellowship and unity that we share. Invite someone to community group or be open to spending time in community group if you're not connected. Extend yourself to join the group of men that that come together on Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. at Babs to pray or clear your schedule so that you can join women's Bible study on Monday night or find someone to your left or to your right that you can spend time opening the Word of God together and praying. I'm telling you, church, if Sunday morning is the only time you're seeing and connecting with brothers and sisters sitting next to you, you're missing out. You're not experiencing the fellowship that John proclaims here in 1 John. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.